0: And let's be frank that was a strategic decisive battle where the russians were defeated by the ukrainians the way the civilians joined this fight immediately was amazing everybody we talked to like i was a volunteer i was here i was a territorial defense i was here so as of this week, you see the HIMARS in theater impacting strategic, arguably operational Russian targets. So hitting Russian command posts, hitting Russian ammunition depots, hitting Russian train resupplies. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt
1: Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at Army MADSci, or subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at MadSciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're joined once again by Major Retired John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies with the Madison Policy Forum. We'll be talking with John about his recent trip to Ukraine to walk the battlefields, the urban warfare lessons he's observed, and the way forward for both Russia and Ukraine. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started.
2: Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, John, this is your third time coming on the podcast, actually, and we're really excited to have you on the show. You've been involved in a lot of really pressing uh, national security issues lately. Um, been all over the news and and really uh, breaking down a lot of what's happening with all the urban warfare going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. Can you tell our audience about the mini manual for the urban defender and how you came about creating it and how is it
0: being used now? Sure. So on February 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine, um, I saw the Ukrainian government basically instill martial law and then told all civilians to go out and resist. And then the guidance was literally make them all cocktails and go out and resist. So I, as a you know, just an, a, a guy who studied a little bit of urban warfare for a while and had my own experiences, started tweeting out, if I was in a city, a complex city like Kiev, here are the things I would do. And I wrote a seven thread tweet that went viral. Once I hit send on that thing, it's been seen about 20 million times. Of course, I answered to the, basically the need. And then I started watching the war like we can, this new TikTok wars that we called them. We can watch the wars in real time. I could watch on February 25th, Russian paratroopers being interviewed at the airport in Kyiv. Um, I could also watch the Ukrainians doing things that I, as a old soldier, didn't. it didn't look right. So I started tweeting out even images, like, like do this, not this. Uh, put up concrete, not sandbags. Uh, and I started putting those out in images and then they all started going viral. And then somebody, because of the nature of Twitter, my recommendations were basically being lost as the thread kept on. So somebody recommended I throw all those tweets together. Then, as a you know academic, I, I remember manuals about resistance that have been put out in the past. There's a British one. There's a Swiss one. There's there's even a an mini manual for the urban guerrilla. So I took all my tweets, I slammed them together, and I called it the mini manual for the urban defender. And it's mostly about defending urban terrain, which I will say is. Western armies neglect, even training de- defense in urban areas, which would ideally, if you knew how to defend urban terrain better, maybe you'd know how to attack it even more so. So I put out, you know, this is manuals mainly about defense, but it also, it was started, you know, gained attention once the manual actually became PDF, and then it was put out by the Ukrainian government. So to my surprise, the Ukrainian government on a military website put out my tweet images in the manual to their people to resist and here here are the steps to to include like Spencer's standing orders, which, if you're a historian, you know that comes from the Rangers standard orders of of Roger Rangers of the 1780s. So I start seeing this in Ukrainian all over the Ukrainian military website, and then it evolved as I started being connected by people and again I did this with no association just as a you know a regular civilian. Taking feedback from other people and saying, okay, if I was in any city, here, here are more steps. I started putting medical stuff in there. You know, maybe it was designed mainly for civilians with no experience, like it was in the beginning. But to be frank, you know, they were calling many people to the military. They're standing up reserves. And um, as an old ranger instructor, I also know that people under stress need simple instructions. I didn't go as far as going Marines with crayons or anything, but. I, I did put simple images in there, uh, and I think that's why it did so well, and I and it kept updating in version. So as of right now, it's it's been used all across Ukraine. It was in Mariupol. Um, I've I've received images of it all across the country. It was actually even a hundred thousand copies were printed off by a Ukrainian publisher and distributed to the Ukrainian army. And as you know, and I think you'll ask, I just returned from Kiev studying the Battle of Kiev, like I kind of did. You know, when we talked about the Battle of Susha, I went into Kiev and I walked the ground. Um, I also met with civilians that are preparing. And then I recommended to the publisher, like, hey, can we get Bucha territorial defenses? Can we get them more copies of the manuals? And because they had an image here or there. So it's an evolving product. But I think it really speaks to this ideal that lots of people have studied of armed resistance. And if you have a concept, especially in Eastern Europe, of your whole country is going to resist an invasion uh, that, that's good and excellent a uh, plan, but you have to give people a little bit more instructions. And sometimes that's even to soldiers who you can't just assume know the basics of urban warfare.
2: No, that's great, John. And as, as you said, it's been all over social media and it's becoming a major part uh, of what the Ukrainians have been doing. And segueing to that, you recently visited Ukraine, like you talked about. Can you kind of tell us about that experience?
0: I think it's important to study wars firsthand you know, we in the US Army used to have combat observers a long time ago, places where we weren't fighting, but we'd send people in to study them and learn the most up-to-date tactics from even if it's a potential ally or potential enemy in, in the future. Part of my work is, you know, I go in sometimes at a little risk because I think it's important to go in and get the lessons first. So I traveled, you know, through Poland, into Ukraine, all the way into Kiev and went to every key site that I had researched beforehand because I'm an again i i try to be academic and then with my host talk to fighters who had fought in places like bucha or Penn, hostomel bovary um, and and analyze the, both the russian approach what they were they trying to do and then how the ukrainians stopped them with a very small force um, when they all odds and endless expectations were they would fall within days and they they not only lasted they defeated their attackers. So with going through
2: that, what has stood out to you most uh, from your observations then and also just throughout this war, how is it compared and contrasted with the second Nagorno-Karabakh war uh, that you walked through as well, uh, the battlefield walks that you did there? Yeah.
0: So the, the interesting parallels between the Nagorno-Karabakh war, as you, you remember from that story that I talked about, was the appreciation of the complexity of the train. Right. So Nagorno-Karabakh is very open um, with limited access of advances, so limited roads. Um, and then you had the city on cliffs. So Kiev's a major m- metropolitan, right, over three million people. I-, I had an idea of what that looked like from my own experiences and, you know, studying Mumbai, studying Baghdad. So, but I didn't have an appreciation of the complexity of the terrain of Kiev once you understand the ancient nature of why it's there, right, this ancient fortress city, and that's why it's, it exists. And then it grew over time, and you have all these peri-urban spaces. So when I went there with who I traveled there with, you know, immediately, literally, we drove straight into Bucha. And to get this understanding of how complex the roads are, the density of the roads, but also they're, they're juxtaposed to lots of rivers, which we know in the Army, wet-gap crossings are huge, but I didn't have an appreciation of how that worked as in all these villages. So some people say that the Battle of Kiev never even happened. But these are like neighborhoods, cities that grow into cities, neighborhoods of Kiev that were you know, separate before, but they're no longer separate and they're connected in many ways. So the sheer complexity of the terrain, and like I said in Nagorno-Karabakh, how that played more so than any technology, terrain matters. I'll eventually write the report of the battle, just like I did to Susha. And one of the number one lessons was that the Ukrainians understood their terrain and the complexity of it, and how to use the terrain to their advantage and basically create hot gates. I don't know if you're a fan of 300 or the real story of Thermopylae, of, of basically using restrictive terrain to funnel a large military into very narrow avenues of approach which is in our doctrine, right? It's in in our defense principles of establishing obstacles to turn, fix, um, turn them into your kill zone. Well, the Ukrainians did that beyond my belief all over Kyiv. They flooded three separate rivers on purpose, which was amazing. I thought it was just one. I thought it was just the European River, but they actually flooded with engineers, flooded three separate rivers to take away avenues of approach that they knew the Russians needed. Because, you know, I also had this conception of, okay, the Russians landed in the airport in Antov, in Hostomel on day one, they were defeated, and then they eventually started getting there. No, there were multiple mounted avenues of approach that were happening simultaneous to the airfield seizure they were attempting in Hostomel, which was defeated, Uh, but the mounted approaches were on the ground just as fast as the Russian paratroopers, but what was different is that they were facing obstacles like this massive obstacle belt. Some of it was the rivers, right? So they blew bridges. I couldn't, I lost count of the number of bridges that the Ukrainians blew. And then they left some bridges open that they wanted to leave open. So clearly there was some planning about defending this city that was, I think to a level of knowledge that even if you would have dropped me or any other American force in there would be really challenged to understand how to defend that city like that. They flooded entire villages and they flooded major rivers to where there's no crossing them or you're know, swimming your vehicles. Although most vehicles say they can do that, but they can't really. But the other aspect was the volunteers. So you're back to the mini manual for the urban defenders. There, I don't think the story of how Kiev was defended by not the military, but by the civilians has been written adequately enough. There was only one brigade responsible for the defense of Kiev. And that was both sides of the Dnipro, which is a huge, massive, I mean, it's hundreds of miles wide, Kyiv is, you know, three million people. It's, It's a very vast city. And they had one, the 72nd Mechanized Brigade responsible for defending it, which is crazy, right? Arguably that they were told not to be in position before the invasion. So there's some political decisions, right? All wars, politics, by other means. But even though they weren't in position, All these civilians, so all these Ukrainian men who had served in the army from 2014 and beyond established leadership of these small civilian groups of like 10, 15, 20, who like in Bucha and Erpin, as soon as word got out that the Russians were invading, went to their local recruitment center for territorial defenses or community defense, grabbed an AK-47 and maybe an RPG and created massive amounts of ambushes. So these mounted assaults of the Russians were attacking, at the same time they're trying to do an airfield seizure and fly an air bridge in, they're facing a father and a son RPG team at a critical road intersection that takes out a tank. They're facing one bridge that was left open in Bucha where they take out the first vehicle, right? Good ambush principles, take out the last vehicles and trap like a hundred vehicles inside of them and take out a hundred. That's on like March 1st. I mean, it's, it's these defense in depth that they conducted but not just with the military. I don't even think they knew that this was going to happen like it did because clearly they didn't know what the Russian exact Russian plan was. And the Russians did target all the airfields. So there was, we knew that they probably knew there was an airfield invasion coming, but they didn't know where it was headed. The way that the civilians joined this fight immediately was amazing. In every position we went to, even on the Eastern side uh, in, this, in the villages of Bavari, which are really some really big anti-army ambushes happened a little farther into the couple of weeks of this battle. Uh, it was a military formation at this bridge that was left open, but then there, everybody we talked to, like I was a volunteer, I was here, I was territorial defense, I was here. Can you imagine being in a position like like I was in the 2003 invasion and, and at, a, at a traffic control point, and then like a hundred civilians with AK-47s join me and say, hey, I'm here to help you defend this. That's basically what was happening. All across Kiev.
1: Hey John, that's awesome stuff. Uh, I want to talk sort of the Russian side of it now. Um, what do you think the Russian way forward is going to be? And what surprises might we see that have kind of been in the back of your mind? What's, what's your view there?
0: Sure. So, yeah, this has been a very dynamic war to call, let's say, to, to analyze. And there will be much analysis later. So after the, the defeat at Kiev, and let's be frank, that was a strategic, decisive battle where the Russians were defeated by the Ukrainians. Through the help of superior intelligence, through the help of Western weapons, but mainly through just sheer grit, will, and understanding to train better. And then the Russians call this, oh, no, that was never my, my objective, although they stated in public it was. So they, they're going to take the Donbass and they're going to go back to, some people say they changed their doctrinal approach. Maybe I can get you there. And then, what the although I think that they just got so taken apart by the Ukrainians, they weren't able to implement even their plan or their doctrine in Kyiv. So, in the eastern part of Ukraine, in the Donbass, they have moved forward very systematically with mass and fires, which is the Russian doctrine. Russian doctrine calls for massing of artillery fire in front of moving formations, and then you move forward a little by little. Um, and as we've seen this slam against the urban areas, because you know, my play of the last podcast, it's all roads lead to urban. And even if you draw the map around the donbass they're attacking in the open and there's fights in the open, but they're headed to those urban trains so they can call it theirs. So like this battle of Severodon, yes, that ha- ended just days ago, they destroyed 90% of the city like they did in Mariupol. And these are hundred thousand, 200,000 cities destroying every building as they move forward with this fires. But they're also paying a huge number of casualties that I don't think we can really point to since World War II, costing 10,000 soldiers to take a city, 5,000 soldiers to take a city if you're attacking. We do know that urban warfare required, it will cause more casualties, right? Some people estimate four times the amount or four times the amount of ammo. It's always more. But they're applying a nutritional model of sacrificing men for terrain. And that's what they're doing. And the Ukrainians are fighting smarter. They're taking advantage of openings where they can. And it's not that they're fighting defense and they need to fight combined arms maneuver. They are doing that smartly and not sacrificing massive amounts of formations like the Russians are. So you know, I don't like drawing the line between attritional, positional, and maneuver warfare, but heavy amounts of fire. They do have a massive amount of artillery and they do outnumber the Ukrainians in, in sheer numbers of BTGs, although they're, the composition of the BTGs is arguable. Um, I think they're gonna to continue to push, but they're, they're already running out of ammunition, the reports show. They're already having huge leadership issues and they're changing out leaders frequently. Um, so the question, and, and hopefully there's no analyst that's gonna give you a direct quote of when this ends, Um, I think, from my own study, is that they're going to push forward as far as they can get um, until they culminate. Some people draw the line of culmination by the percentage of the forces defeated or destroyed. Other people, just uh, their ability to continue to do the operation offense that they're trying to do, or defense hold what they got. Um, Whether that means that they push forward, I think they'll push forward to the next big city across the river called the La basically in in the Luhansk, the other major city, the question really as of this week is whether they'll push forward to Kramatorsk, which is a very key city in that region, but not necessarily key to Donbass. And either either or, they're going to draw a line and basically at that point say they have achieved their mission of liberating, in their words, which is just illegal, liberating the Donbass and then seek some term, seek some referendum, you know, do the Russian model of saying that it's Russian Federation territory, and then go in and hope, you know, imagine that they'll go in negotiation. But the Ukrainians have said from day one, they're, they're not going to do that. So that plan, if that's the Russian plan, both their political and operational plan, get to this uh, bargain for peace in a position of power in the Donbass, the Ukrainians said, that's a no-go. That doesn't matter how far you get. And the Ukrainians are getting stronger, right? So the, the MLRS, high MRs that the United States has sent them is immediately effective. And the U.S. has done great on, okay, we're not just going to give you a bunch of equipment. We're going to pull you out. We're going to train you so that you can... Really important as you know, as an old you know, combined arms team leader, your know, maintenance is as important as actually functioning of the weapon system. You, you want to be able to use it more than once. Um, so training them on maintenance... And it's been very deliberate, but as soon as the Ukrainians get it into theater, you see immediate uploads of video of it having catastrophic impact. So as of last this week, you see the HIMARS in theater impacting strategic, arguably operational Russian targets. So hitting Russian command posts, hitting Russian ammunition depots, hitting Russian uh, train resupplies, things like that. Uh, I think you're going to see more of that. To help push the russians towards what they think it's culmination uh, as the ukrainians then you know, pull back you you only defend and as you prepare to, to go into the offense and hopefully go on the offense in a in a major but deliberate location right like they're having success in the south and Kherson, so they're going to capitalize on those successes and then they're going to reform they are reforming units you see russians trying to basically enlist people that we would not like old older people or young people not even finished with high school I mean, those are acts of a desperate military for sure.
1: Yeah, John, that's great analysis. Um, let's talk about your book a little bit. You, you recently released a book called Connected Soldiers. Um, what's that book about? Who is the primary audience? And what lessons are you trying to get out with that? Sure. So I, I
0: I published a book called Connected Soldiers, Life, Leadership, and Social Connections in Modern War. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere you get your books. But it's, it's, a, it's mainly a memoir, right, of my 2003 deployment, my 2008 deployment. In my 2018, let's say, deployment, because military families do deploy with their their loved ones, where my wife deployed, and I'm a retired guy at home with the kids. The main theme of the book, though, is how war has changed, how constant access between home and war has changed both combat effectiveness. You have to care about it. You have to, as leaders, so the audience is, of course, leaders of men and women in our militaries understanding that this ideal that you're going to separate home from war is gone war will be home with the families and that matters but also the home will be forward of the military and that's what i saw right so i joined the army and then i went to war in 2003 and it was like you know band of brothers and a year 12 months just writing letters home and experiencing the war together sitting around Uh, the Humvee and telling stories to each other and experiencing the war together. And then I went back in 2008 and every night we come back from patrol, you could get online, you could talk to your loved ones, which is what people do. There are major advantages for the military family for that. There are also cautionary disadvantages of, okay, now the soldier has a foot in both worlds. Now the family has a foot in in a view into war that we've never had before. And I think one COVID taught us that we aren't virtual beings. We can't live our lives solely virtually. There is an aspect of having to have physical connections. And we know in, in, in our militaries, cohesion is the lifeblood. And this is the research I, I weave into the book, right? So the number one answer across time for why soldiers fight, why they're willing to move forward and die for each other is because they love each other. Called call primary group cohesion. I think that this connected world that we're living in complicates the ability to form that cohesion. It complicates the home to war, but it also, I think, you know, if you go to my kind of military strategy aspect, even talking about Russia and Ukraine, it impacts the resolve of a nation to continue to fight when they can see into the war every day. It's allowed, this connected world has allowed people like President Zelensky to send a message to, let's say, the Azov Stahl defenders in Mariupol, who will become legendary like the 300 Spartans. Uh, they were able to talk to the president every day and to stay motivated. So this aspect of connected war, I think, is something that the army must deal with, which is a big importance to our military right now. You know, suicides and, and kind of negative things and readiness Cohesion is also a method, a method that we know across time has allowed soldiers to deal with war, to live with war. When you start to pull away from that, people go into these words where they think they're alone, right? And that's the world of this social media world, which has a positive and a negative. So I think that's the last kind of the end of the book is stories about soldiers who kind of felt like they were alone. You know, I think we have some great initiatives in the military now, like this is my squad and things like that. But even soldier for life as I am now a retired soldier. uh, We need social connections and we need physical connections as part of our human beings.
1: I think that's a really important point, John. I think you said it really well. Um, And I think this war has shown us that um, one, we can be very connected to what's going on. um, And two, that's, that's a great thing to get people on your side, but also Certain implications for the U.S. Army in the future is what if our adversary does that better than us next time? What's the other side of that? if we're not the ones that are connecting and pulling in, um, you know, international support. So it's very interesting, very interesting stuff to think about. So the last thing we want to ask you is, um, you know, what are we not thinking enough about? And that is, you know, the U.S. Army, the DOD, what are we missing here?
0: I continue to think, and not just because I, I have a dream job and I'm allowed to study urban warfare for a living for over a decade. The, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army is not learning the lessons of modern war that they will happen in urban areas. And they're not just a condition of a military task. There are differences, like the Battle of Kiev will teach us, to understanding an environment so tacitly that the task actually changes to doing in in this highly dense populated urban areas. The Army still does not have a major school for urban warfare. They still don't have a unit focused on the urban environment. We now have the 11th arctic division where's our urban division i think this hopefully further helps with the data and the evidence that the future of war is urban
1: john spencer our urban warfare expert uh we want to thank you so much i know your time is super precious so every time we can get you on here you know we're eternally grateful for your time and for your insights and for your analysis Um, so thanks again for coming on the show one more time
0: well thank you this is such an important project i've followed it from the beginning
1: Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, John Spencer, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.